Come on. All right. Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing today? I want to get right into this message because there's so much here, and I want to have time at the end to really respond to it. Um, but let me ask you a question. If I, said, if I said I'm sending out an SOS, what would you immediately think? Way to, bring it, way to bring it down, Kate. That's... But it was my question, right? What do you think of? You, you might think I'm in trouble, but really what is, what, what's an SOS? If you heard an SOS or somebody sent you one, you're in trouble. It's a call for help, right? And, and okay, I know there's radio nerds out there. Terry, where are you? Who would say an SOS is just a random series of dots and dashes um, doesn't stand for anything. But what does is, what is SOS come to stand for? Save our souls, right? Why do our souls need saving? Why do our souls need saving? Because they always seem to be in trouble, right? If you look at what humans are composed of, there's spirit. Spirit, the word translates as ruach. It's the, it's the breath of God. It's the mighty breath of God in you. But the soul... The soul is comprised of typically, what do we say? The mind, the will, and the emotions. It's what makes you uniquely you. And it's why uniquely you always seems to be struggling or in trouble one way or another. Um, It's that middle one I want to focus on, the will. Your will. How many times does our will get us in trouble? I'm not talking about those of you with two-year-olds out there who knows how a will can get you in trouble. Um, But our will, our will gets us in trouble. Our will damages our Christian witness. It damages our reflection of Jesus Christ in us. And here's what I mean by that. If you've been coming here for any length of time, and I've made it no secret where the Lord has told me that this pulpit is not it's to be used to preach the word. It is not for politics. It is not for uh, cultural issues. Only when the word applies directly to that do we talk about that. But let's talk about politics. <laughs> Can any of you think of any single issue that routinely divides people other than politics? There's hard, there hardly is one, right? In, in a general sense, politics is so divisive. And I want to ask you, those of you who have experienced maybe a conversation with a friend or family member or maybe even just a random person at the grocery store where you've gotten into one of those conversations and you're like, I need to back out of this because it's not going well. Is the reason that it wasn't going well because you fully submitted your will and what you want to what God wants, and that's what you are advocating for, and that's what your prayer is focused on? Or is it, it went south because you were trying to enforce your will on someone else? Think about that, okay? That's not where this whole message is going, but it's the ability to submit our will to what God wants, And I want you to think about that as we get into this message, okay? So we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 today. Um, The specific part, chapter 14, 
verses 32 to 51. Excuse me. Last week, we talked all about communion, right? Jesus introduced the idea of communion, that idea that at that moment where Jesus was at the Passover meal sharing a cup with his fellow disciples, with all of his friends gathered around there, sharing that cup, and he taught them, this is the cup of the new covenant. That was that moment, that monumental moment in all of history where we went from the old covenant celebration of Passover, which was a remembrance of a deliverance that happened several thousand years ago, to that moment of celebrating that everyday deliverance that the new covenant offers. That was a huge moment. That's what it was all about. And so that's just kind of a quick recap. Go back if you're out there online. Welcome out there online, by the way. All over the world we have friends out there. So glad you guys are here. Pastor Paphras and all you guys in Tanzania. Um, Welcome. Go back and listen to last week's message if you want a little bit more detail on that. Because I want to get right into this. We're at this place where Judas had been called out by Jesus. And Satan had literally, we learned from John, had literally entered into Judas, causing him to do what he did. And Judas had been called out, and Judas had now fled the scene. He's not there at this meal anymore. Now, when Passover, when the meal has concluded, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and they head out, and they go to the Mount of Olives, Okay, specifically, they're heading to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. But they head out to the Mount of Olives. Um, how many of you here have been to Israel on a trip before? Okay, quite a few of you. But for those of you who haven't, and for those of you who had, a quick reminder, the Mount of Olives, when we hear um, Jesus left Jerusalem and he went to the Mount of Olives, we're picturing, because we live here in Colorado, right? We're picturing they're, they're climbing a 14 or they're going up to Mount Evans or they're someplace. It's, it's a big, rugged thing. Or even the mountains right out the back window that you can see. Um, it's not like that there. And when it says in Scripture that he crossed the Kidron Valley, it seems like this arduous trek, right? So for those of you who kind of think and learn visually, I want to show you. This is a, kind of a map. <coughs> Excuse me of Jerusalem. Now, this is the walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to get over here. So this dotted line here, those are the walls of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, okay? And then just right here, the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see this says Mount of Olives, or if you can't read it, it says Mount of Olives. That's pretty close in scale here. Maybe it's not perfect scale, but it's close you enter, you exit the what would be called the East Gate or the Lion Gate. Very short. It's more like a ravine, okay? It's more like you would be crossing over this area that's over here to our south. It's not a huge, arduous journey. And immediately, you start climbing up the Mount of Olives, and you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's a picture of what it looks like uh, if you're in Jerusalem. So you're standing. This is actually... The wall in the foreground, the wall of the old city of Jerusalem, and you're looking out at the Mount of Olives. Now, the condos weren't there in the time of Jesus, but the Garden of Gethsemane is somewhere like right around in here, so it's not, it's not a long journey. So that's where they head. Okay, so for again, for those of you who 
kind of learn that way, that's where it is. The Mount of Olives has always been a place of significance. It's always been historically significant. There's all kinds of scripture. If we go back, we go back a thousand years before Jesus to King David. King David and his followers, scripture tells us in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 15, if you want the whole story here, um, they fled. They were being chased and they fled. David and his followers fled out the east gate through the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives. It says, weeping and barefoot when his son Absalom was pursuing him. A little bit later, not too much later, King Solomon, who's David's son, um, had started out so well and then went south and started building idols to his wives and things like that, built them on the Mount of Olives. You can read 1 Kings 10 and 11. If you want the story of how that worked out, spoiler alert, not well. Um, And then later on, 500 years after that, the prophet Zechariah actually foretold that the day of the Lord is coming where the Lord will stand victorious. And he talks about exactly on the Mount of Olives, ready for battle and be king over the whole earth. That's Zechariah 14, if you want the whole story. Um, It's been a contended piece of property. It's gone back and forth um, for a lot of time. Now, interestingly enough, back in the 1600s, um, some Croatian um, knights of the Holy Order, it says, uh, actually purchased the property and had handed it over to a group of Franciscans who now, um, who now steward that piece of property. But it's still significant today. Those of you who have been there um, to Israel and then further subset of those of you who have been to the Mount of Olives. You can go there. You can go to the Mount of Olives. You can walk around on it. You can actually go into, by reservation and appointment, you can go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's an interesting thing there, though. And those of you who have been there might remember this. Um, it's a place of prayer. It's a place of contemplation. We'll see in the Scripture today that that's what Jesus does. And... It is such a spiritual battle that swirls around that piece of property. There are a constant string of cars, typically driven by Muslims, who honk their horns and basically just create mayhem as they drive in circles around the garden on the roads. The purpose is to disrupt the prayer that's going on inside. Um, it's It's a contentious piece. Maybe not as contentious as the Holy Mount itself, um, but it's been, it's been a constant struggle ever since the beginning, a spiritual struggle. And we'll see Jesus continuing that spiritual struggle here in what we read today. So Mark 14, 32 to 51, <coughs> excuse me, starts out this way. They came to a place, that's verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Okay, the name Gethsemane literally means olive press. So that's where he goes. He says, sit here until I pray. So he brings all of his disciples up there, and he tells them to wait while I go pray. I want you to catch this. So whatever you're doing out there online, set it down. I want you to catch this part because this is, this is crucial. We've always been taught, and I've taught, that prayer, we don't need to overcomplicate prayer. It's simply talking to God. Anybody else heard it ever said like that? And so I'm not here to complicate it, but I am here to tell you a subtlety 
in the language that's being used here now, where Jesus says, sit here until I have prayed. He's using the word, and it's used in several other places, and that word pray translates in the Greek, let me go slowly here, prosukamai, prosukamai, okay? And the definition of that, if we break it in half into its roots, pros means, means towards or to exchange towards, okay? And yukamai means to speak wishes. So you put those together, and in the Greek, what it means literally, when, when Jesus says, sit here until I have prayed, it means literally to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes for his wishes, exchanging your wishes for his. How many of us look at prayer like that? I'm exchanging my wishes for his. First of all, I'm going to hear from the Holy Spirit what God wants in this situation, and then I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to give him my will. I'm going to give him what I want, and I'm going to take on and pray fervently for what he wants. How often do we think of that? Most often, I think of it as an arm wrestling match, okay? I'm going to sit, and I'm going to pray and pray and pray and pray until he gives me what I want, rather than to ask him what he wants for me. And that should be what I want with all my heart. So remember that. We're going to come back to that part later. So we get to the point, and this uh, big part of this story that we're going through, this scripture here is the point where Jesus literally begins to think about what he's going to go through. Okay? How many of us, again, it's human nature. It's this part of the, the duality of Christ where we have that he's all God, he's all divinity, but he also has that human nature that he struggles with while he's here on earth. He did it better than anybody else ever could or will, but he still struggled with some of these things. And this is the point where he starts to think about, this is really happening. Because up until now, he's been on his mission. He's been healing. He's been traveling. And he's been very clear, this is going to happen. But just like we would, when it's still a week, two weeks, days, anything down the road, it's like, okay, I know that's going to happen, but... Right now, I'm not going to think too much about that. He gets to this point where, where now he's got to think about it. Mark 14, And he took with him, so he's in the garden, tells the guys to stay, but he brings with him Peter, James, and John. Remember where else Peter, James, and John got kind of singled out to come with him? It's a transfiguration, right? So these guys, these guys are a little bit special among the disciples there. If you have... And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. If you have a King James Version, it uses the word sore amazed. Jesus was sore amazed. We don't really use that in our language anymore. What it means really is that that Greek word where your King James says sore and amazed or distressed and troubled, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this word. It's Greek that my mouth will not do. But the word in Greek literally means awestruck with terror awestruck with terror. And that explains what happens next. Think about, think about the worst dread you've ever felt. Dread it means you're fearing something that's upcoming, that's in the future, right? Could be immediate future, like I'm dreading opening this door to the basement because I just watched a movie I shouldn't have and I'm worried about what's down there. Or it could be April 15th is coming up 
and I'm dreading that. But think about the worst dread. Maybe it's a phone call from your doctor with a diagnosis. Maybe it's a phone call that you know is going to be coming for a loved one. That worst dread you've ever felt. And think about that word, awestruck with terror. So much, so much fear and anguish inside that you can't even wrap your mind around it. You can't even quantify it. That's where Jesus is. Mark 14, 34, and he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. You ever thought about why Jesus needed that privacy? Everything else he did pretty much in front of the disciples to teach them how to do it. You ever wonder about that? We're not going to go too deeply into that, but why he needed this privacy. It could be that he didn't want the rest of the disciples to see him in a moment of of doubt, in a moment of this deep grief. How encouraging would it be for the disciples following him to see their leader struggle so much with what was about to happen? Because he's been very, very, very steadfast up until now, but now he's struggling Jesus is suffering right now. So we see him suffer on the cross, of course, very well documented. We talk about it all the time. We see it all the time. I think this is the moment where he really begins to suffer his destiny that culminates on the cross. But right now, he's feeling this pain. Mark 14, 35, and he went a little beyond them. So he stops, even those three, stops them, goes a little bit further by himself and fell to the ground and began praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. This is, we see the human nature of Christ in conflict with the divine. He knows what has to happen, but there is a human nature that's saying, is there any other way? Is there any other way we can do this? And he knows there isn't, but he wants there to be. See, I don't think it was the pain of the crucifixion that Jesus was dreading. You'd have very good reason to dread that. But if you think about a typical crucifixion, the the victims who were being crucified, typically they would last for days. It wouldn't be just a matter of hours. They could last for days on the cross in anguish and agony. Jesus suffers very much so, but it's only a few hours or a short period of time, anyway. He's taken on the weight of the sins of the world onto him. That had to be crushing. That had to be something to dread. And Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but here's what I think. Remember back when we we taught Job? If you missed any of the series of Job and, and you're in for some really exciting teaching, go back. Go back to Job. But we see Job, we see Job lamenting and in anguish, and in not only in physical anguish, but this spiritual, this emotional anguish that he goes through. And if you remember, the reason he was in such anguish is because he was used to being with God all the time, hearing from him, walking with him, just knowing God's presence was there, and suddenly, silence. Suddenly, crickets. There was nothing. And in his time of anguish, crying out to God, there was silence. I think that's what Jesus is dreading here, that awestruck terror of, I 
I am one with the Father. I have walked with the Father all this time, and yet I know there's going to be a moment very soon when I'm not going to be in communion with the Father. I think that's what he is, is dreading more than anything. Luke 22 adds this. 20, Luke 22, verse 44 says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I can't even imagine the agony that that would be, that he would be going through. But he's going to go through it, and he knows it, because the events and the hours of their unfolding had been ordained from, for, for, since the beginning. That was written in time. There was a time for that, and it was coming. Mark 14, 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Look at the last part he adds. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's saying, I don't want this. If there's any other way. Abba, by the way, translates the closest thing in our language is just daddy. So intimate with the father. And he's saying, if there's any way to take this away, please take it away. But I want what you want. He's willing. He's willing to submit his will. Jesus, right here, we see him submitting or, or exchanging as that, as that word in Greek for prayer. Prosukomai, what it means, he's exchanging his will for God's will. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus from the beginning has been saying, it's not what I want, it's what the Father wants. And that's why I'm here, to do that. And yet there's that humanity. Mark 14, 37, and he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? It was probably sometime after midnight. Luke says in his gospel adds that they were sleeping for sorrow. You ever been so, so just overcome with emotion, so that you just want to sleep? Luke gives them a little bit of grace and says that's why they were sleeping. Notice anything odd in that, though? I'm going to read that again. Put it back up there again. Mark 14, 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Anything jump out as significant to somebody there? He calls him Simon. He changed his name to Peter a long time ago called him out into this new destiny. But in this moment, Jesus calls Peter Simon, reminding him of who he was before. And in that moment of weakness, he call, it goes back and he calls him Simon. He wasn't disowning him. He wasn't saying, yeah, maybe you're not the person I thought you were. He's reminding him of who he used to be. It's the only time, by the way, that Jesus goes back to calling him Simon. But even now, even in the midst of, of such anguish that he's literally crying blood, amazed and terrified, he's teaching them, teaching the disciples about the battle between the desires of, of the flesh and of the soul and then the spirit. 
He's telling them, keep watching. Mark 14, 38, keep watching and praying so that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's telling them this. Keep alert. Stay vigilant. Your flesh is going to be weak. Flesh unto, like, you have to take time to eat. You have to take time to sleep. But stay alert. Mark 14, 38. Keep watching and praying so that you will come into temptation. I just read that. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Without the Holy Spirit, these men were still vulnerable to spiritual attack all the way out to and including possession, just like what happened with Judas. They were still vulnerable, and so they still had to stay vigilant because they were very, very soon going to be put to a test, and they wouldn't do well on that test. Mark 14, 39, and again, so after, after chastising him then, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. This doesn't mean that he went out and repeated the same exact prayer. What it means is that he was persistent. He's persistent. He is trying. Jesus right now in this moment is praying persistently until his flesh aligns with God's will. And he's going to keep praying until that happens because we see fear. We see he's, he's lashing out. He's, he's calling out to the disciples saying, why can't you stay awake? weeping blood, but he's persistent. He's going to keep praying, keep praying, keep praying until that flesh lines up perfectly with God's will. That's what he's doing here. So again, he goes back and he's praying and, and the disciples get overcome with fatigue again. And again, they give in, Mark 14, 40. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say in reply to him. I mean, what could you say after two times? Like, sorry. There would be no words that would really fit that situation. Jesus leaves them, goes back. He prays a third time, a third time, only to again find them falling asleep on their watch. Mark 14, 41. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Here's where we know that he has accomplished aligning his will with God's will. He has completed that, taking what he wished and exchanging it for what the Father wished. And he's done that now because we see him now steadfast. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? That's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Do you notice the shift there? from weeping blood, crying out in anguish, amazed with terror, such, such anguish that, that we can't even put words to it, to all of a sudden, this is happening. This is my destiny. I'm going to walk in my destiny. Let's get up and let's do this. He goes from that, like, I wish there was any other way to, we are doing this and we're all doing this. Very steadfast. And he's energized and he's ready to go. Any trace of fear, any trace of doubt is gone because he has prayed fervently and repeatedly and persistently to the Father until his will lined up with that of God. And that takes away all fear. It takes away all doubt. It takes away all hesitation. 
and you are steadfast to accomplish what the Father has for you. That's exactly where he is right here. So Jesus in his spirit has to be aware that danger is approaching, and he gives him one last exhortation, Mark 14, 42. Get up, let's go. Behold, the one who is betraying me is near. Just as he's saying that, Judas walks in surrounded by guards, Mark 14, 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Mark 14, 44, 45. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Verse 45, and after coming, Judas immediately went to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Have you ever thought that was odd? That Judas would, do you think there's a chance that the high priest and the, and the scribes and the guards and everybody that would come there would not be able to pick Jesus out of this crowd? I mean, he's the one in the white robes that were glowing and he had the halo floating over his head. How could you not recognize him, right? <coughs> I make light of it, but I, I shouldn't. It's, kissing is a cultural sign of respect. It would not have been unusual for Judas or any of them to call out to Jesus, identify him as rabbi, and give him a kiss. It was a cultural sign of respect. And so by doing that, he's sealing that. He's saying, I know who you are. I respect who you are, and I'm still doing this. It was another just furthering that decision that Judas had made. Now, listen to this. It's not, it's not highly theological, but it's very, very interesting, I think, at least to me. Mark 14, 46, and they laid hands on him and arrested him. Verse 47, but, the one, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Remember hearing that story, Anybody? tells me a couple things. Number one, the disciples were carrying, okay? They, they were armed, and they knew how to use it. They weren't totally passive, and they were there to protect Jesus and to protect the things they had. But even more striking than that, John's gospel is the only one that identifies this one of those as Peter, John's gospel is the only one that tells us that was Peter. You ever wonder why that is? Why doesn't, why doesn't Mark in his gospel say, and Peter took his sword and cut off the guard's ear? How embarrassing would that be? Given what we see happens here in just a second, Peter gets chastised for his impulsive nature and for doing something that Jesus didn't ask him to do. Okay, he took it upon himself to cut the guard's ear off. Now, who wrote Mark's gospel? Mark. But where'd he get his information? Peter. Peter was dictating this, his memoirs, so to speak, to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. If you're Peter dictating your memoirs, would you go really in-depth into something that was, didn't paint you in that good a light? No, you tell the facts, and one of us pulled a sword and cut off the guard's ear. Not deep theology there necessarily, 
Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. Listen to this. Matthew 26, 51 to 54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Okay, if I'm Peter, I'm not putting that in my memoirs. By the way, 12 legions of angels, a Roman legion, typically anywhere from six to 10,000 soldiers, but 6,000 was the bare minimum. If we take 6,000 soldiers in a legion, multiply that by 12, I'm not good at math, but I think it's 72,000 angels. This is all metaphorically that he's speaking. I mean, it can happen, but he's saying, you don't think this could happen? What kind of danger or damage can one angel do? Anybody know? Let me give you an example. Second Kings, if you want, this is a, I love this scripture. Second Kings 19.35. <clears throat> Read that section in Second Kings 19. It says this, Then it happened the night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the rest got up early in the morning, behold, all of the 185,000 were dead. That's one angel, okay? Twelve legions of angels can do some damage. But Jesus is not pointing out the number and the size of the angel army. He's saying, do you think there's anything that can happen here that my father's not allowing? If he wanted to stop it, he would stop it. Luke 22, by the way, goes on to tell us that Jesus healed the ear. Think about that thing that scene with Peter, pulling out his sword and uh, impulsively striking the, the guard and cutting off the ear. Matthew Henry's commentary, one that I like to read a lot, puts it like this. It just says, it's easier to fight for Christ than to die for him. Let that simmer for a minute. That'll be the one you might need to think about. It's easier to fight for Christ than to die for him. Mark 14, 48. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords? Now he's addressing the mob. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a man inciting a revolt? He had never given them any reason to think that he was going to fight back. He had never given them any reason to think there was necessarily going to be a problem if we put aside the incident with Peter but they weren't willing to take a chance. Mark 14, 49, Jesus goes on and says, Every day I was with you in the temple grounds teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has taken place so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. He's referring to Isaiah 53, which says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open its mouth. This watching their leader get handcuffed, put in chains, put in shackles, and carted away rattled the disciples to the point of fear. Mark 14, 50, and his disciples all left him and fled. So in the middle of him being carted away, they just flee. Now, here's another interesting thing. We talk about... um, 
Mark's gospel and him getting memoirs from Peter. See, Mark was very, very young at the point that this was all happening. But if you're Mark and you're writing this gospel, even though Peter's giving you the words, you might put a little phrase in there that says, oh, yeah, I was there too. I wasn't one of the disciples yet, but I was there too. He writes this, Mark 14, 51, 52. This is how this section concludes. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. That's Mark saying, that was me. I was there. He had come out in the middle of the night. Remember when they left the upper room where they were having their Passover meal? That was at Mark's mother's house. And so when he saw them all get together and leave, he had to be going like, wonder where they're going. wonder what's happening out there. And then he sees Caiaphas and all the guards getting together and heading up that way. What would you do as a, as a young kid? I'm going to go see what's going on. So he throws a sheet around himself and then runs up there. Again, not super deep theology there, but it's interesting. So I want to wrap this up. Um, I want to wrap this up by asking you, what's your takeaway from a message like this? The different things that I've talked about, the different things we brought out, what's your takeaway? Is Is it the way that Jesus chastises Peter for being impulsive? and calling out his former name, saying, remember who you were and who I've called you. I've called you into something better. Stop sliding back into who you used to be. Is it the way Jesus gave himself up without a fight? A lamb led to slaughter. Is there something else that jumps out to you guys? To me, it's the power of prayer. It's the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, being in the garden, being conflicted with his human nature versus his divine nature, saying, I know what needs to happen, but I wish there was another way. And what he does is he prays fervently and repeatedly and earnestly, and he keeps on going, and he keeps on going as many times as it takes until his will aligns with the Father's. And then when that happens... He is steadfast, and he says, guys, let's go. Let's do this. It's happening now. There's no more fear. There's no more doubt. That's the power of prayer. In that moment of weakness, Jesus used the best weapon that we have against doubt, and that's prayer. That's what he does. In his Sermon on the Mount, which had happened in time long before this part that we're teaching on now. But Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father in heaven. If you understand pray or praying as exchanging your will for the Father's will, does that put a different spin on praying for your enemies? What I do when I pray for my enemies is I say, Lord, let them see that I'm right. Let them see the error of their ways. I'm not the only one, right? But what if my prayer for my enemy was, God, help me to see them the way you see them? 
Help me to see and to say and to do and to think what you want me to think about that and about them. What if it was that instead? It'd give you a different perspective on praying for your enemies. Just a few minutes after making that statement, Jesus goes into what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Okay, and he's still in the Sermon on the Mount, but he goes into this because they're asking him all these things, and he says, this is how you pray. Matthew 6 starts in verse 9. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be our name, your name. He's, He's recognizing the sovereignty of God. And then verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there any doubt to anybody that God's will is being done in heaven? Shouldn't be any doubt that in heaven, God gets his way. What about here? We are the instruments of God's will. And it's up up to us to pray until our will aligns with the Father's, just like we see Jesus doing here. It doesn't stop the fact that Jesus goes through a trial, that he is crucified, that things happen, and it won't stop it in your life either. But it'll give you a perspective It'll give you a kingdom perspective. I think the church has done, the church in general, has done such a disservice to the kingdom of the Lord by focusing in on what I just call your personal Jesus. What can Jesus do for me? What can he do for me? The idea of your personal salvation is incredible. It is a wondrous gift, and it is It is an amazing thing. But if we take that and say, okay, I'm good. I'll put it in my safe until I need it. Then we are of no earthly good to the kingdom of God. But through prayer, through aligning our spirit, aligning our will, that is, with that of God, then we will do his will on earth. And it will be on earth as it is in heaven. But until we can submit our will, until we're willing to say, I don't like that person, that politician, that thing that happened, I don't like that criminal, I don't like that neighbor, I don't like that enemy, I don't like the fact that I live here, whatever it is, until we're willing to take those and say, God, I want what you want. And I want to take those things that I think I want, I'm going to give them to you. And I'm going to take what you want for me. And that's going to become what I want. That's true submission to the will of God. And when we do that, we will bring heaven to earth. The problem is many of us don't practice it very often. Or our prayer is, Lord, help everybody see it the way I see it. So I want to ask you, I'm going to pray to close before we go into communion. But before we do that, is there anybody here who's bold enough, someone who struggles with giving their will to God and accepting his will, who would be willing to start us out in prayer this morning? Oh. Like, okay. Who is it? Okay. 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 Are you willing? Okay. 
That is divine providence right there. Okay. Just, just start, and I'll finish it up if no one else wants to. If anybody else wants to add on to this, feel free. Go ahead. That's great. Oh, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for another day that we can come and we can listen to you and talk to you. And thank you for the message today. My heart is receiving that message. I need, I need to want what you want for me and for those in my life and my family. Father, I just ask that you forgive me for wanting it my way, and I commit to you right now to strive to want it your way. Help me with that. Father, I love you, and I'm grateful for all you've done for me, and anything I can give you, I know it's not enough, but I know that you love me, and I thank you for that. Thank you for mm. Anybody else? Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for this church, this message. Pray with me as we close this out. Father God, help me to see those around me the way that you see them. Use me to reflect the love of Christ to those that you bring into my life. Those I care for and those I don't. Help me to see them the way that you see them. Lord, help me. Help me to align my will with your will. Lord, I submit my will to your sovereign plan. You are good. You are holy. You are perfect. And I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take communion right now. We have the self-serve station over here, which has juice. Uh, and bread, and you can serve yourself. And then Gabe and I will be here, Jim and Sandy. Uh, White will be over on this other side, and we'll be serving wine there. But I tell you, every week we talk about taking communion, and let's do this. Let's do this with this message in mind. Lord, I am submitting my will to yours. Through the body and blood of Christ, you have given me everything. Everything I will ever need and you have given me so much more than I deserve. But by taking communion, we are saying yes to that. I accept this gift. I appreciate this gift. And I will live my life in submission to your will and be a reflection of who you are. When we take communion together, we're saying that over every time. So if you need to sit and listen to worship music for a song or two to get your mind around that, to get your heart in that place, then do that. Just take all the time you need. But when you're ready, let's take communion together. Amen? Thank you, guys.